This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 25, with your hosts, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today, we have... Brian Lee, Transom Real Estate. Brian, welcome. Thanks. I'm welcome excited to, to be here. Yeah. How, was, uh, how are things going in the world of real estate? Things are, things are good. Things are busy. There's a lot of stuff going on in the market. Construction is very expensive right now. Deals are hard to find. But uh, I think if you look at the right spot, there's still some opportunities out there. What are your current build costs? Oh, Going straight wow. to it, huh? <laughs> Great question. You said, you said it's expensive. I it want to expensive. know how. How expensive? Yeah. One size does not fit all. We're lucky to have a few projects in very different types of buildings. Stick build over podium. So that's a six-story building. And we have something that we're working on in South Boston right now. And those are coming in, you know, on the high 200s to low 300s square yeah. foot. My personal question is, when you're talking about square footage, because we always have this debate, is are you talking about gross or net? Uh, so we always talk about gross got it. when I think about it. And usually that gross square footage doesn't include the garage, but the price is in there. And so if I say it's $30 million and you're dividing it by some you know X square foot that's above grade, not garage square footage. And so your question's a good one, but there always has to be additional yeah. follow-ups because... You know, everything's different. A garage could cost a couple million bucks. And we're lucky at, at our Southie deal, we don't actually have one. But if we did, you know, that price would have been up uh, to, I don't know, maybe 315, 320 a foot. Nice. It's like a hybrid. It's like hybrid. Yeah. gross, yeah, hybrid. but not some things. Yeah. <laughs> are these all uh, resales or are these holds? Um, so most of our deals are structured in opportunity funds. Um, we would love to be able to hold them. But there is the necessity to recycle some cash. Um, and in particular for Transom, you know, I, I heard Ted Ty on here the other day. It was fantastic. Uh, he's a 30-something-year-old company now. Yeah. They've received some tremendous success. Uh, we're, we're four years old and we're, we're fairly young. And so uh, very important for us to keep, keep everything moving and to recycle some cash and, and pull it out when we need to um, so we can deploy it back into some of our new deals. How does the Opportunity Fund uh, work? So uh, usually we have a majority partner in most of our developments. Uh, as you can imagine, some of these checks are quite large. And so we usually bring on a, a large partner. They are basically a capital allocator and they allocate capital across the country. Uh, and their investors usually consist of groups like pension funds and endowments and in certain circumstances, very high net worth individuals. So they kind of a, 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 uh, accumulate a large amount of capital and they deploy it into different deals, some of which uh, are ours. Are they the only lender or do you have also traditional bank lenders? So they're more of an equity partner and we will have traditional lenders. Who um, does more due diligence and underwriting? I think the equity partner, had, at least at the beginning until the lender comes in and then it's the lender. <laughs> no, both, both of them do a significant amount of homework and uh, it's always good because they, they uh, are very smart people and they make the project better. How much equity are you typically giving up to your partner? Are you allowed um, to say? It really ranges deal to deal. I'd say your standard is a 90-10 deal, where of the equity required, our capital partner is 90, and the general partner, GP, is 10%. But to be honest, it can range. Uh, sometimes we go lower to two and a half. Sometimes it could be 15 to 20%. It just really depends on the size of the check, the set of circumstances, and how people want to take risk and align interest. Nice. So you guys are a four-year-old company and um, you have two partners uh, aside from yourself and you guys all came from the world of Related Beal? We did, yes. It's a good um, place to uh, cut your teeth. It was, it was fantastic. There's yeah. a great group of people over there. They're uh, very, very smart. I think we learned a lot of great things. Learned some things that we carried over to Transom and learned some things that we would do differently. 
Um, and I think that, uh, that just all in all was great lessons over there. Also forming the team, we had three people over there that worked together. Uh, my partner, Peter Spelios and, and Neil Howard. And we all kind of attacked the problem from a slightly different angle, which gives it a pretty unique approach. Neil's background is really construction management. So for uh, 10, 12 years, he worked in a construction trailer, really focused on the sticks and bricks. And, and my partner, Peter Spelios, comes from more of a legal side. He was an attorney, uh, handled a lot of permitting and zoning for related Beale. So what do you do? Uh, I don't know yet. <laughs> He's a spokesman. Yeah. He does podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I do podcasts and I shave for them. Yeah. Um, no, I uh, I come from a more acquisition background. So usually I'm kind of on, on the front end of finding the sites that are available and figuring out the debt and the equity that goes into them. And then, you know, we have a small company. So we all overlap a tremendous amount. And it's all about, you know, being next to each other in the office every day. There's three of us and rolling up our sleeves and figuring out the details together. Are you a believer in um, debt brokerage? We talked about this last episode. What do you mean by that, Mark? You know, hiring a, a firm to take, say, 1% of the debt and to help you shop it out to various banks and get you and source you the best deal you can on that capital. That is a great question. What do you guys think? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we've always done the traditional on our side. We've always done traditional, just working with a couple lenders directly. Yep. So we haven't had the opportunity to work with them. Yep. But I'd be open to it. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's a great question. And it's something that we think about every time we get debt. In the past, we've done a lot of it ourselves. And yeah. just now we're starting to actually escalate away from that mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and to use uh, a mortgage broker. And I think the reason is really they have a tremendous amount of expertise and they also know what these lenders have done in the past. And so they can say, you know, so-and-so could be more aggressive. You know, maybe this person might be less aggressive. And so that helps. And it helps new relationships. And, you know, honestly, a lot of these guys are also tied into the investment sales. So um, that symbiotic relationship also just helps with doing business with, with people we like in the city. And it leads to, leads to more business usually. Yeah. I think one other thing is, to your point, they help you negotiate the best terms you can get. You don't necessarily even know where you should be gunning for. They see so many deals and so many different types that they say, oh, look, I got Dan and Ray, this interest rate, I know I can keep pushing. Whereas you might have said stop or good at a, at a higher interest rate. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the times we know a lot of the people on their lists, but mm -hmm. because of the process and the way that they run it, it yields better results. What was your guys, since you were four years old, what was your guys' first project you did right out of the gate? So the first project is 212 Stewart Street. And to be honest, it was much larger than we ever thought we would do on the first project. <laughs> what um, was that, 130-something units, right? 126. 126. Yep, in a 19-story high-rise in Bay Village. Um, so we were really excited about it. We had been by that parcel of land a hundred times and ridden our bikes by it. And you know, Neil and I live in the city. And so uh, it was always something that we were really interested in. You guys figured you'd play off of the nine-unit building we were doing on Isabella Street, <laughs> yeah. so named the Mark. It was just a multiple yeah. on that. Yeah, it's just like, hey, the Mark is a great project, and it's and Thank it's done you. too. Yeah. So congratulations. <laughs> Happy to set the bar for you. <laughs> it was just a lucky timing, to be honest with you. We we knew the real estate investment trust that owned the hotel next door, and they had excess land, and we flew to Bethesda and kind of gave them a little bit of an off-market pitch on why we should do it, and flew back and I was like, we'll never hear from these guys. I mean, <laughs> it's a small piece of land in a, you know, national public real estate investment trust. They're not going to focus on it. And sure enough, within two weeks, they called us back and they said, the deal's yours. So we were shocked, pleasantly surprised and called the landowner next door within a week and said, we have the site next door tied up. 
and ended up assembling both sites together and closing about 45 days later on, on the same day, both sites. Assembling parcels is an interesting trick. I feel like sometimes once they know that you control one site, they feel that they can extort or extract a greater value than it's worth. Call it an, an a butter's premium. So occasionally I've heard of folks coming in with very coy or an LLC, an unnamed buyer. Did you, did you guys ever have any experiences like that or I, just I've tell heard the, the truth? Yeah, we just walked through the front door, to be honest. I, yeah. I grew up in Florida and I remember hearing crazy stories about when they assembled land for Disney World and that's exactly what they did. Yeah. Um, it's just a thousand different entities all under you know various names so no one knew what was going on. Obviously, this is a much different scale than, than <laughs> assembling half of a city. Um, but, <laughs> swamps. Uh, yeah, a, a bunch of swamps. Although our uh, for a mouse. fill isn't, isn't much different. <laughs> right. Different kind of swamp. In terms yeah. of our ground conditions. I think part of it is also that that, um, that other owner needs to know that there is a a time sensitivity to it. And so sometimes you may end up paying a little bit more, but a lot of times these owners aren't necessarily in a hurry to sell. Mm -hmm. And they realize that their site's worth more if combined with the site next door. Bingo. So if they don't sell with this guy, they realize, you know, my site might actually be diminished in value. And so I think in a lot of cases, that's what happens. My my favorite example of that is um, in South Boston next to Port 45, there's a small commercial lot and it was a restaurant. And I just feel as though they overplayed their hand. They knew there was a premium to be had. The developer offered them, from what I understand, a very reasonable sum. And at a certain point, he said, screw you, I'll build around you. And he did. And then they ended up selling it after the new building built all around them was complete and they didn't get near but they, uh, they, they did actually sell that afterwards. I, 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 I think it closed. Okay. Yeah. I have to look for it. Yeah. But I, I, they, remember that. I assume they Some got way less apocryphal. than... Yeah, I assume they got way less yeah. than what they originally yeah. wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who knows? You know, I don't even know what that was offered. So. so getting to the parcel of lands, how did that, from an acquisition standpoint, you probably weren't making the assumption that you were going to get the abutting piece of land either, right? So you, That's right. you had a plan in place yep. for just that one parcel threw it right completely out the window once you realized, hey, the second parcel is could be ours as well and they're amenable to to going under agreement. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. We actually looked at both scenarios when we when we approached the public REIT and had both in mind, certainly. But when we were able to get the second parcel, it really unlocked a size uh, of that site that allowed for just more dynamic uses, um, which I think is what was justified on that site given the high spine location and a bunch of you know significantly tall buildings to the left and right of us across so you, the street. So you purchased that building without a contingent, the, uh, the land without a contingency. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, how did you hedge your risks when you approached your investors? You know, because it probably, I assume it wasn't a small sum of money when you were purchasing it. Right. For. You know, we did our normal due diligence, which in this case was 30 or 45 days. And I think we closed on both sites 15 days after. I think the answer is to get comfortable with a bunch of different scenarios. And it's not all just, you know, the same plan, the same use. It's underwriting uses left to right and, you know, multiple different scenarios, stress testing it and getting comfortable that we think that we can, can, you know, achieve a certain density in order to not only deliver on what we promise to our investors, but also to create something great in the community that fits within, you know, the context of the neighborhood. So basically, see if worst case works. Yeah, I think, and then go from there. I, I think that's right, and I think a lot of it is just being reasonable. You wouldn't, for example, we're we're doing a project in East Boston right now. It's on Bremen Street, and we're proposing a four to five story building. In some areas, it's four stories; in other areas, it's five stories. 
I think if you took that same building on Bremen Street and you moved it back to Chelsea Street, it wouldn't be appropriate. So I think a lot of it is knowing that the great idea wins and that if you propose a project that you know in in your heart and works in the urban fabric and in the neighborhood, that that great idea, people will understand it and get it. And I think in, in the case of Stewart Street, that was the case. We stepped the building back in Bay Village and down as a nod to a lower a lower density in that neighborhood. But on Stewart Street, where buildings are very tall and proud, we embrace that. So I think it's just really understanding where you are in the neighborhood and trying to come up with an idea that makes sense to you, but also makes sense to the city and the community. Hey, can we talk? Um, you have a project in South Boston as well. We do. It's condominiums or apartments? Uh, they're apartments, 55. Wow. How did you guys acquire that deal? How long has that been in the makings? That we bought about a year ago. Yeah. Maybe a year and a few months ago. And the same, uh, we bought that without permitting contingencies from Gillette. And uh, really the same scenario in that case, we're doing a six-story building. How did you get acquainted with the folks from Gillette? You know, I shave with their razors yeah. and they appreciate me as a good customer. Yeah. So they called me up one day. No, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was brokered through a group called, uh, at the time it was a group called Colliers. Yeah. Um, and Scott Dragos, uh, who now is with CBRE. For um, sure. We have a great relationship with those guys. They do a great job both at Colliers and at CB. But uh, we I think it on the pod. It'd be great. I was yeah. on the phone with them earlier today. Nice. Make the intro. But uh, I, in that case, it was the right. It was the right fit for us. We're because we're a small company. Uh, we do not chase volume, and so when we see a project that uniquely suits us, we go very hard after it. Um, and those are pretty rare. Can you tell us about your filter? So let's call it like a go no go kind of thing. Yeah. Because I'm sure you get ten deals a day or X number of deals a week email to you and sent to your way? Like, what are the first things that you look at to decide, like, I'm going to invest time and resources in studying this further or not a fit for Transom? Yeah, it's a great question. And to be honest, it's taken us years and years to develop that filter and to learn some some uh, of those lessons the hard way, yeah. um, where you just spend a lot of time. And when you look back, you say, what were we doing? Yeah. This isn't a fit for us. So I don't know. Um, I mean, I think you get very comfortable with your delete button yeah. <laughs> um, because time is our biggest resource. Um, Money is important, but it's especially time because that's all we have in a day. Yep. And so like, for example, just down the street, Gillette also sold a six and a half acre parcel. Didn't spend two seconds on it. Too big. Way too big. Yeah. I would have consumed our entire company forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if someone said, hey, this is yours at a fair price, of course, we would have been interested, but not worth um, our time to to go chase something like that. The big groups are out there and we won't compete. And their advantage, in my opinion, is cost of capital. You sure. can't compete on a project of that scale because the money would be too expensive to you relative to what they could raise that money for. Uh, I agree. Or, uh, or in-house construction and all that fun stuff. Some of that. Yeah. These are huge projects. They take an absolute ton of horsepower to get them off the ground. And uh, we're we're just not that group. Too small is probably another filter. Yep. Too small. Um, We, when we first started, we started, you know, exploring slightly the brownstone markets, uh, learned very, very quickly that we couldn't be price competitive. And it's just that people are out there swinging their own hammers and doing deals at lower margins and you know, we have an institutional mindset based on our background. And so we're bringing in attorneys that are probably too expensive and too much of an overkill for that. Um, so we learned, again, very quickly, it didn't really work. Are you looking for raw land only or? No, we're, we're up and down. Um, we do a lot of development. Most of our deals are, are raw land for development. Um, but we're closing on an office building. Um, it'll be our first office acquisition on Monday. Nice. Oh, congrats. Excited about that. Yeah. Going back to the Southie deal, so you said those are apartments. They're yeah. not 
you're not going to resell those. Well, they're apartments. That's right. Okay. We, we will eventually sell the whole building I as see. an apartment building. So build it, rent stabilize it, stabilize it, stabilize it, sell it. Yeah, that's right. So what's, what, how many years will that take? Um, it's been a year, a year and a couple months. It'll take, we'll probably break ground in January. So let's call it, it will be in for a year and a half at that point. Um, it'll be, call it an 18-month construction process. So call it three years and then maybe six more months of stabilization. So all in, I'd say that's about a three and a half year cycle. That's an asset where I just absolutely love South Boston. I think, you know, especially on the Broadway T-Stop, it's a phenomenal growth market. Seaport's, you know, so busy right now and also very expensive. And as you guys know, Dorchester Ave has just been rezoned and there's a lot of institutional ownership there. So they're kind of two magnets on the other ends and this site's right in the middle of it. I'd love to own it for the long term. So if we can get creative and figure out how to do that, I'd love to do it. I think that area of, of town has just got tremendous potential, both for upside and just constant stability. I just, the demand there will be strong forever. So you mentioned folks who swing their own hammer and a related uh, form of that is development firms that have their own GC branches or, or arms. Is that something that you guys would desire to do one day or think about? I know related Beal seems to be pushing that direction. They did. Um, they, tell us about that. They, they did. It, it's nothing that we've considered, to be honest yeah. with you. I think it makes a lot of sense uh, for related Beal and especially at their scale. Um, and they have that expertise. So they're really a vertically integrated firm. But for us, uh, we want to focus all of our time on real estate and the sticks and bricks of acquisitions and true real estate rather than true construction. Like I said, only so much time in the day. So we're trying to focus and um, not spread ourselves too thin in too many different business lines. So what is the minimum size project you'll do and the maximum size project you'll do? You know, I think 20 to 30 units on the minimum side starts to make sense. I kind of look at it as amount of work. And so if it looks like maybe the permitting process isn't overly difficult, or maybe it's already permitted, that would skew to the lower side of things. And if it was just a you know huge permitting lift, then it would have to have some sort of scales to make all of that work make sense. For example, the Edison plant in Southie that's going, it's a big enough project where they can make sense of really putting a lot of horsepower into permitting that. But imagine all that work for a project that, and at the end of the day yielded 10 <laughs> units. <laughs> no. It would just not make much sense. So that's how we kind of look at it. Uh, but generally speaking, 20, 30 units on the downside and I don't know, 200 units on the upside. And what are you looking at for returns? So for, I guess, both on the apartment resale side and you know development to sell side, condominiums. Sure. So on the apartment side, there is we're lucky. Boston has attracted just a ton of capital into this market. As a consequence, I think there's more capital and chasing deals than there are, are deals to be had. And the consequence of that is that it's just driven those rates down over the past few years. And so, you know, returns really depends on risk and risk depends on location and product type and all that good stuff. It does range, but uh, on the apartment side, anywhere between you know a five and a half and a six and a half is kind of the sweet spot of where the market is, and those numbers are a, a return on cost. And so, at the end, like in in economic terms, that's NOI divided by total deal cost would be between five and a half and six and a half, and that range would depend on location and other factors that that uh, translate into risk. Can you break that down a little further? I think sometimes numbers and formulas can be tough uh, with a 
podcast. So net operating income is defined as? So that's basically what you would take home if there was no debt on the property. Okay. So rents minus vacancy minus operating expenses would give you your net operating income. And you divide that over? Your total cost. Okay. And if that number comes into five and a half to six and a half percent, that seems to be where most deals are getting financed. And that's um, building and acquisition market. cost? Or, that's right. Yeah, okay. yeah, total. Total. Can we switch gears into this? I've never heard that yeah. metric before. I always hear either IRR or a general cash on cash return or... We look at man. the cash on cash. We look at the IRR too, but I think most people would tell you the IRR is the most easily swayable number and it's just a real function of time. And so we're, you know... You can have it make adjust the time variable so it looks good. You got it. Yeah, Yeah, you got it. And I a lot of times, and especially condominium deals, because if you time it right, you can get in and out of them so quickly Mm -hmm. that you could have a very high IRR in the 30s even, but your multiple might be uh, 1.4. So you're really not making that much money, but that IRR sure sounds nice, and it's just really because it happened so fast. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we have increasingly, and not just us, but the market put less emphasis on IRR and more emphasis on on return on cost and on uh, on just equity multiples. Sure. And now that metric that you just mentioned, the NOI versus NOI over the uh, total cost, that's for the apartments that Dan was asking about. What's your what are your what's your key metric if you have one? Sure. For the condo play. Yeah. So so um, the condos is a is a more difficult question. I, I think that we normally look to a two equity multiple for condos. So that's total equity back in divided by the total equity that you spent. Um, so true cash on cash, if you will. And we try to size that to a two. Now, I've seen people in the market that are going significantly lower than that. I guess we'll, we'll see. Time will tell if, <laughs> if they're right or wrong. Um, or if they're around to talk about it. <laughs> they're around to talk about it. You don't uh, want to be below one, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. <laughs> <good math>. <laughs> Look, I, I, I hope they're right, um, but I think condos is a very time, it's all about timing. And um, if you don't nail the timing on it just right, then that number could slip. And if you don't have a lot of wiggle room and you're already at a 1.4, 1.5, man, if those condo prices are 10% lower than you thought they were yeah. three years before you deliver it, you're wiped out um, and you've, you're below the 1.0 um, that you mentioned. So um, for sure. There's a lot of other t- tax treatment on condos is really tough too. They're taxed at, at um, uh, ordinary tax levels rather than capital gains taxes. So a lot higher, almost double the tax rate on the profits. That's actually a good question. So if you do this development project for an apartment complex, and I know we're not CPAs, so there's that disclaimer for everybody listening, but you develop it, you build it, you stabilize it. You mentioned six month time frame. That's still not a full year. So is that still subject to capital gains when you resell it? Because it's an apartment type property or is that still It's subject to capital gains because um, you're in it for a long time. Your equity went in and, you know, as I mentioned, the whole cycle was three and a half years and most of your equity has been in there for most of that time. And so apartment sales are almost always treated as capital gains taxes. So the clock starts when you close on the deal? I think it's when your equity goes in. I see. Um, but I am also no CPA and we're all very lucky for that. Yeah. <laughs> see, 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 I mean, but to me though, it's the same thing. Like a condo play can take just as long, but it's because the intent is to resell yeah. and not, asset type is not a long-term play. Yeah, yeah. That, that's right. And, um, you know, when your money comes back out, it, it comes out very quickly. Um, and 
Anything deeper than that is a CPA question, unfortunately. <laughs> Have you ever 1031 to anything after reselling? Or no. would, would you go through the 1031 to like to go from one apartment project to another? Is that even feasible? Or are we just getting into a realm of, you know, ask the CPA? It's a good question. I think I think it's an ask the CPA, but there's specific buckets of capital and it's uh it's not all it's not all our money. If if we were if I was solely putting money into, say, an apartment building and then flip, selling it and flipping into another apartment building and it was just me, I think that would make sense. But these are different hands, different buckets of capital. And I feel like the 1031 exchange process would be pretty difficult to navigate those waters. I've never it, done it, it before. Process. People, there's such I've never a done mis- it, is it? There's such a misconception. Have that you, you done it? Just, I, I haven't, but I've, I've researched it and spoken to attorneys who do nothing but 1031 exchanges. They can lead to bad deals, right? Like I've gotten calls from brokers Hey, Mark, I need to buy this. I don't care what the price is. How much would you go for all of your units here? Because my buyer is running out of days on their 1031 because you only have a limited number of days to identify the property and then to close on it. And if your tax treatment is going to be you know, X, then you might overpay on that side. So as a seller, it can work to your advantage if someone needs that. It's one of those unicorn uh, type hmm. situations where a buyer is going to come in and maybe give you more than market. Yeah, but you got to time it right. It, it's, yeah. You have to put it into an intermediary. Oh yeah, don't touch the money. I know that. It's, it's, it's not simple. Let's just put it that way. So it sounds like you lean more towards liking the apartment play versus the condo play. Well, how about liability too on the condo play? Yeah, sure. That's real. Yep. I mean, I think to us, we look at condos as not something that you underwrite because the apartments won't work, but instead there are sites that specifically should be condo sites. They just make sense to be condo sites. Um, And I think those are more rare than the market says they are. A lot of people, especially now, say, well, the the apartment model is not really working, so let's switch over to condos and see if that will work. Might not be the best idea. We kind of look at it and say, you know, tax treatment is very different and much more expensive on the condo version. Ongoing liability, as you mentioned, Mark, is uh, is much greater on the condo side. And not all sites are created equal for condos. Yeah, we don't, we don't have to go too far into this, but it is safe to say there is a very like in vogue form of class action lawsuit where these sort of ambulance chasing folks will just go to condo association meetings and they're like the music man coming to town and they'll rally everyone and say, for no cost, I will. Yep. You know, pursue it, something that, and, and you own right. that for a number of years. Yep. And we don't have to go too much. And and that's obviously trickled <laughs> through the insurance markets yeah. um, too, because when you're insuring those projects, now the those insurance policies are very expensive. There's plenty of GCs that will ask me at the very outset of a project, are these condos or apartments? Yep. And if the answer is condos, they're not interested in building it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard that question too. Yeah. Yeah. Because of that, we we gravitate towards apartments. Um, plus our our investors and and we like the cash flow um, that's there. And if the market dips a little bit, I mean, we're lucky we're in Boston, so it's a really stable economy. But if the market dips a little bit, you can always have an asset that you can hold on to. Whereas if you're in a condo situation, you know you're you're looking to sell those as quickly as possible and pay back the lender. Are your investors comfortable enough where if you do need to hold the asset longer than the initial term you can restructure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the the finesse here is aligning the deal with the right capital partner 
And I just think you never want to, you know, have a gun to your head to sell something. If you have to hold it, you need to have the flexibility to hold it if it's better for all parties. Makes sense. Um, and so we make sure that when when we go into these, we say, look, this should take three to four years, but if it takes longer, um, and that makes sense for the for the partnership, then we're going to figure out how to hold it longer. Are your partners, your investors that you're bringing in, are they pure equity, or are you? Is there any debt involved in that as well, or is your is your debt just with the traditional lender? Debt's just with the with the traditional lender. These are just equity partners. Can we uh, switch gears into design a little bit? Love to. So you guys, um, you guys use different architecture firms for each different project. Yeah, we do. And and you guys seem to really, um, let's say, not skimp on design. I think I've seen some really well known architects doing the drawings for your buildings. That's something that's important to Transom? It is. I think when we set out from, that was one of the things we learned from Related is, you know, to create a brand. And uh, I think what we've set out to do is to really try to up the ante in Boston on design. And we go down to New York two or three times a year and we call it the architecture death march. And we (laughs) usually bring all of our architects (laughs) with us. And we literally hit up 60 to 70 buildings in a two-day period and take a thousand pictures and just try to understand it because their market is more evolved than ours um, with respect to design. Um, So we come back with a ton of ideas and we're not architects. So I don't pretend to know why I like a building um, more than another building, but I know that I do. And so the question that we have is why, right? Why is that? Why does that building stand out to us that we like so much better than the rest? So we've just really studied the question of why. And to do that, we've had some great architects in town help us. We do a lot of work with Howler and Yoon. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric Howler uh, and Kyle Coburn on his team just do a phenomenal job um, with architecture and design. Um, they've helped us with our 212 Stewart Street. Those guys are pretty close to Starkitects in they, our market. They, they are. Yeah. They're, they're, they're great guys too. And uh, I think that, um, that, that, is, that has been a huge help, but it, we're not New York. We can't afford what New York can do because their condos are selling at, you know, 3,000 a foot, whereas we're lucky to hit 1,500, maybe 2,000 in the best of circumstances. And so it's a very different economic paradigm in Boston. But that's the cool challenge is how do you create great design within budget? And I think anybody could create great design if you throw a bunch of money at it. But there are economic constraints. And we're not doing this just to be altruistic. We like good design, but it has to pay itself back. The investors need returns on that. We need a return on that. So we study very, very hard how to create great design without a great premium. Yeah. And to figure out how to justify what kind of returns we can get for that increased premium in design. But the key is to just is to figure out how to do it without spending a lot of money. What are some of the areas in a development that you feel you can get like you can save money on, but also have it look High end. Sure. I'm not sure I'd say save money. It would be to limit the additional expenditure. Such as? So our, our, our skin in Southie, the facade of that building is a Peterson Brick. Peterson Brick is a company out of Denmark. They put their bricks on a lot of buildings in New York City, but they have a new uh, brick called Peterson Cover. I think it's been used only once in this country. I want to say it was on a church, um, never been used in a residential, and it's a fairly new product. But Peterson's been around forever, and they're really known for their very high-end expensive bricks. This brick is not that. And the great thing about it is that on a price per square, on a, on a weight pound per square foot, it's actually lighter than brick. It's cheaper than metal panel, and it's very, very easy to assemble on the facade of a building. 
And so when you add up all those costs, it does take some effort to ship it into the country, but you're assembling it very quickly, very easily. It's less heavy, so less structure, um, and it looks phenomenal. That's not really being used by anybody else. And it really took, I'll give my partner, Neil Howard, a bunch of credit for it. He knows the Brit company and did a lot of work to identify it, to price it, and to say, we can actually put this product on our building and it's not going to be a very big premium. And it looks phenomenal. It's about the same cost as metal panel. Just think a lot of people look at a building and they say, well, that one used metal panel on Hardy and that one used metal panel on Hardy. So I'm going to do that. And no one's going the extra distance to say, like, how can we make a building look different and cool without spending a lot more money? And having it kind of blend in or make it feel like it's part of the neighborhood still too. Yeah, it's it's important. I think, you know, just being within the context, but also standing out and and upping the ante a little bit, exactly. I think is, is yeah, a great thing. Yeah, but do you agree with that? What? Because I don't. Blending in or standing I, out or? I think I, I agree with standing out. I don't necessarily agree with blending in. I think blending in, but being different in certain areas. You don't want to be... Remember when we drove around Cambridge and not knocking on Cambridge, but there were some neighborhoods where the house style, the house look, the colors, everything was just completely different on one whole block. Yeah. And I thought that just didn't make the neighborhood feel like a neighborhood. Well, I guess it felt like I think there's an answer in the middle. I mean, yeah. you can be responsive and respectful of the rhythm of the block and... Um, the streetscape while also making it look like it was built in 2019 and giving it your own uh, identity and touches. And um, that's that's where I like to be. Yeah, I know. I, I completely agree. I, I think if you get the reaction from the neighbors like, hey, that looks really nice, whether or not it's because it belongs there or because you did a nice job picking high quality materials and it stands out and it's not obnoxious, right, or, or crazy, then I think that's a fine line to, to walk. I was going to ask earlier about, uh, you mentioned when you were in New York, you know, Manhattan, that I guess they're calling it the Jenga building. I don't know if it's apartments or condos, but cantilevers everywhere. Sure. It looks like a Jenga oh, tower. Yeah. I think that's, I'm sure that was probably like number one on the tour stuff. <laughs> it's an interesting building and it's so visible from everywhere. I think it's yes. Herzog and Demuron, the architecture firm, 56 Leonard, I want to say. I was, I was walking around there and I actually saw it in person. It, it's really cool to see, but it it's is. cantilever city. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine how yeah. expensive that is to build. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's something nightmare. where, you know, you've got the recognition of it, but sure. geez, what did that cost? Right. We ask ourselves sometimes too, and it's really exactly what you guys just touched on. Could this building ever actually work in Boston? It's New York is not Boston and they can get away with a building like that in New York. I think that something so out there like that building, maybe it could happen in here, but it would have to be the right part of town and have a lot of support. That doesn't even talk the, about the, the economics of it. Way. The Lucas was love-hate. We make lists of us. Lucas was, for those folks not uh, familiar, an 1850s German church that we sort of built a curtain wall structure four stories past the existing roof and reused the Roxbury Pudding Stone facade for the lower four stories. And it's striking but it's constantly on lists of most beautiful buildings. And then the comment section is filled with critics <laughs> who can't stand it in Boston. So you, I, you can't make it. I have to be happy. honest. I, I really love that building. Uh, but when I first saw it, my initial reaction was that will never get through BCDC. <laughs> and it had already gotten through BCDC yeah. when I said it. And I was very surprised, but pleasantly surprised because mm -hmm. I, I actually think it's a great building. Going back to that, that market that you were, that we're talking about the, you know, $1,500 to $2,000 a foot market in Boston. Do you think that there is a saturation of that market coming, you know, the higher end luxury market 
Um, Because I know New York City is experiencing, you know, kind of uh, oversupply issue at the moment. So do you think Boston is anywhere near that? You know, I'm talking about, you know, the the top of the market. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I wish I had the crystal ball to answer it. My thought is kind of gets back to not all sites are, are created equal. I think there's a lot of supply of that at that level in the seaport. There's not a lot of supply of that level in Back Bay. And I think that, you know, to get into kind of an, an economic nerdy term, that the income elasticity of those people in those neighborhoods really matters. So if you're able to afford that and your job is in Back Bay, then you're not going to be interested in commuting from the seaport to Back Bay to save a few bucks on your condo. Those people are just going to buy in Back Bay because that's where they want to be and they can afford it. Um, so there hasn't been a lot of supply in, in Back Bay. And I think that market is still strong. And the people who want to live there just want to live there. In the seaport, I think there is a lot of supply. Um, and so I'd get, I'd get back to how do you differentiate yourself? You got to be a little bit different at that price point. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to fight the entire market. Where are you guys trending as far as unit size go? I've heard a lot of developers starting to sort of shrink units with the idea that there's a larger pool of buyers at those price points and you can command a better price per square foot for a more modestly sized unit. Do you yeah. guys subscribe to that? Yeah, I, I think we do in the right circumstance. In South Boston, we think our building is going to skew to a younger demographic. And, you know, talking about Seaport, um, Seaport is of a certain price point and we're not, we're not really trying to compete with that. We're trying to be less. So we feel as though our South Boston project is going to be uh, people who you know can't afford a 2,000 square foot condo in Seaport, but want to live close to where they work, and so I think that's you know 20, 30 somethings, singles, young families, and couples, and that yes, those people, um, that demographic would like a smaller size, and then that works to keep their monthly price point down. I think there's a real opportunity for that, but you know if you were trying to do it in like say Brookline, I don't think small units is necessarily better. There's a lot of families who are interested in sure. Brookline. So, you know, it's location dependent, just like everything else. Yeah. Did you guys see there was an article yesterday about a project that borders the Brookline, which is a wealthy suburb, and the, the other side of that border is Boston. It's Brighton. And the, the property on the Brookline side will be two single-family houses. And then you shave over, you switch to the, the Brighton side, and it's a four-story, dense urban building. And is this the, next to the Whole Foods? Um, it's near like Cory Road in Okay, um, okay. In oh, I know where that is. Yeah. So it should be dense. And Boston, and this is a good example to me of like, Boston is doing its part in trying to provide that housing supply. And then you have the suburbs who are going... No, we'd like two unique residences and yeah. stop there. Mm-hmm. How does that we, work we, from we an abutter standpoint? Different, different. They're they're different. There'll be different permits. They'll be subdivided. So, no, I mean, yeah. like if the on the on the Brookline side, you know, they're like, oh, we oh. don't want density, we don't want height, but it's is it out of their jurisdiction. I assume they can't it fight is. it. It's out of their. They will have no say over the Brookline side, and it's one parcel on. We'll subdivide it. So subdivide. ultimately, it'll be maybe three parcels, two single-family houses, and an apartment oh, building. Gosh, just but would it, look It awkward. just epitomizes the challenge that I think yeah. we always talk I, about. I think one permitting process is enough. We're, yeah. we're going to try to stick away it, steer <laughs> yeah. clear of two. Yeah. <laughs> Especially two completely separate ones. Right, right. <laughs> as fun as that sounds, I think we'll pass. You guys think we could do a quick round of uh, overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? 
Yeah. Brian, are you familiar with the rules? I think I am. Catch okay. I, I've seen it in the past, but catch me up again. Let All me right. tell me what they are. We'll throw out a term concept and you just tell us if you think it's overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. Okay. So the first one is parking ratios. High parking ratios? Low parking? Oh, good question. One-to-one parking ratios. Overrated. I yeah. don't think parking needs to be one-to-one. Do you think it needs to be higher or lower? It needs to be lower. Okay. Micro units. Appropriately rated. Fire in them. <laughs> are you building, you gotta go with your gut. <laughs> Do you have any going on right now or in, in proposal? Our, most of our Southie deals studios and once. Got it. Um, we have, uh, I think, uh, five three bed units and the rest, so 50, stu- and the rest are split studios and ones. Uh, studios are 465 units plus or minus, and the one beds are like 635. I want to say so they're pretty small, but I wouldn't call them micro units. We didn't no. we didn't set out to be micro units, but we just designed the building to accommodate people who probably won't be in their unit as much as uh, as as otherwise. Apartment building amenities overrated. I personally just don't think that that they're used that much. I think that clever and appropriately designed amenities can be right, but I think that people like being social outside of their building as well. Um, so I would. I would prefer to have a great retail spot in the ground floor of a building that I can go and socialize with people that aren't just in my building, but in the whole community. And from a developer's perspective, that's a revenue amenity too. I think it's a race to the bottom to just deck out these buildings with amenity after amenity after amenity on the coffee room on the fifth floor that no one ever uses. Um, I I don't think it's necessary. White kitchens. I ask everyone this. Great question. Um, Shaker. Yeah, Dan likes to qualify that. <laughs> I am not an interior designer, yeah. but uh, we we have been very interested in uh, dark and black kitchens lately. Ooh, a little moody. Yes, yeah. I think awesome. it's um, it's sort of on the forefront from what I'm hearing on uh, on kitchen design, so, and so uh, it looks overrated? fantastic. So yeah. I, I would go overrated. Okay. I think it's moving. Nice brushed nickel. Brushed nickel. Brushed nickel where? Just finishes. Are they gone? Is it, is it over? Appliances, fixtures, is it done? I think it's done. Overrated. All appliances okay. are stainless steel. Motorized Sorry, skateboards. Brushed nickel Motorized skateboards. Booster Mo- boards. <laughs> Booster boards. I want hoverboards. Yeah, hoverboards okay. are underrated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I like all the motorized scooters, skateboards. Like the lion bikes and the bikes. bird. I, I'm a huge proponent. I know a lot of people are maybe like... Uh, getting sustaining head injuries. On, Wait, what are these? Like, so like the scooters that are just parked everywhere yeah, haphazardly sure. yeah. or otherwise motorized personal modes of transportation. Right. I think that that's way underrated. And as we go forward, that's going to move I a agree. lot more people more efficiently. The, I think it's cool that the city's doing something called mobility hubs now. Yeah on major intersections where there's a decent amount of traffic, they're encouraging developers to do what, these, what, what they're calling multi-mobility um, hubs. So, you know, they want safe intersections, but they want the blue bikes there also. And they want a, an ability for an Uber driver to pull over. And so they're really trying to incorporate into these intersections a lot of different ways to get around, including scooters. Oh, cool. I don't think they're in the hoverboard mode yet, but <laughs> I, want, I would love it. Multi-mobility. Yeah. Is the hoverboard the uh, single wheel and you just kind of stand oh, in between it like wheel. a skateboard. That's a one-wheel skateboard, and it uses like a gyroscope. Yeah. Hoverboard is something yeah. that has does not, I don't think, exist I yet. I think we're like Back to the Future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that's what they were calling them now. I wasn't, I don't know. Uh, I don't it's know been a while, stuff. but I think that's a Back to the Future thing. Don't, don't they call the hoverboard, though? What's the, what's the one that 
like it's a battery operated one. You just lean forward oh, and it moves. Yeah. Is that called the hoverboard? Oh, that thing. Those those are goofy. The ones that like the oh, batteries that call those, are, those yeah. are overrated. Yeah, those <laughs> are very overrated. Okay. I think it's a child. So those yeah. are what the kids drive. Yeah, I was just gonna say they they bring them around in the mall and they run you over. Yes, basically. All right, last one. Who's got it? Hardy siding. You love that. Uh, you love the shaker cabinets. Yeah. You love the hardy siding. No, 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 no. I love yeah. asking. Oh, you love the question. Uh, overrated. No more, no comment. <laughs> Brian, if folks want to find you guys and follow Transom, um, what's the best way for them to do it? We have our website, transomrealestate.com, which is out of date. And we have a, a uh, <laughs> an Instagram account, which I haven't done anything with in far too long. Um, but uh, no, I, I need to fire up uh, Instagram again. Uh, we'll be active on that, especially as we're coming to break ground on, on a few... Um, buildings. I think it's transom underscore re dot insta or whatever it yeah. is. I don't know. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. <laughs> well, Thanks thank for you. joining us. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts in the past. It's uh, a privilege to hang out with you guys for a little bit. It's been great. Right, we been appreciate fun your doing time. And thanks everyone for listening in. Thanks everyone for rating. Keep on listening and we'll see you at the next one. Yeah, and if you have an office space that you'd like to host real estate addicts, we're looking for uh, some space for the pod. Small studio space. Formal studio space. Thank you all. All right, thanks guys. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.